It's Monday, April 15th, 1912, in Baltimore, Maryland. We're in the newsroom of the Baltimore Sun, the city's largest general circulation daily newspaper. They're working on the edition of their evening paper. And on that particular day, the editors are sitting on a big story. They're just not quite certain what it is yet. Some 900 miles away, there were reports emerging that the RMS Titanic, the British passenger liner operated by the White Star Line, had hit an iceberg on its transatlantic crossing from Southampton, England to New York City. The details are still hazy, but the paper's evening deadline is not, and competition to be first with the story was just as fierce as it is today. Now, it's 1912, there is no internet, no social media. There aren't even airplanes that can be chartered to fly out to the wreckage. The sun is almost exclusively relying on wireless telegraphs, which are basically pulses of transmitted radio waves which spell out messages in Morse code. And the ship that many believed to be carrying the rescued passengers, the Carpathia? Their telegraph operators were not responding to messages from newspapers seeking information. Christopher Sullivan, a features editor with the Associated Press, he researched how the media covered the Titanic. And according to him, there were two transmissions that came from the Canadian coast earlier that day that resulted in widespread inaccurate news reporting. He thinks that the newsrooms overheard a conversation between telegraph operators. One of the operators asked, quote, are the passengers safe, end quote. Shortly thereafter, another transmission came in, quote, the ship is being towed to Halifax and everyone is okay, end quote. Problem was, the transmissions from the Atlantic were often disorganized and scrambled. And that second transmission, the one that said everyone was fine on board, it's later discovered that that message was referring to another incident at sea around the same time. But the newsrooms don't have a ton of experience communicating with ships and coast guards, so the Baltimore Sun runs with it. And on Monday evening, April 15th, 1912, they published this headline. All Titanic passengers are safe. The Sun wasn't the only newspaper that got it wrong. From the Daily World, Vancouver's paper, No Lives Lost. From the Evening Sun in New York, Titanic's passengers saved. The Wall Street Journal says, quote, The gravity of damage to the Titanic is apparent, but the important thing is that she did not sink, end quote. So the evening edition is out. But as Monday night progresses, the news becomes clearer. More telegraphs retrieved from the Titanic itself and from other ships are able to corroborate a timeline and paint the tragic picture. By 7.30 p.m., the Associated Press reports the facts. Titanic had sunk at 2.30 in the morning. It was estimated that about 1,500 lives were lost. By the Tuesday morning edition, the Sun gets the story right. Well, sort of. Their revised headline, Giant Titanic Goes Down, 1500 Perish. But in that story, they say that only women and children were saved. This ends up being inaccurate too. Almost half of the Titanic survivors were men. This is the reality of breaking news. 
And we can blame the media for reporting without corroborating sources or for prioritizing the competition to be first over rigorous standards of journalism. But there will always be gaps when stories are being followed in real time or close to real time. And with today's technology, those gaps can be closed in minutes, even seconds. But in 1912, those gaps were hours, sometimes days. Remember, the survivors wouldn't even make it to shore for days after the sinking, and the newsrooms did try to close those gaps. Eventually, they interviewed droves of survivors in hotel rooms near the port. Some outlets even sent reporters into tugboats to try to get to the survivors first. But ultimately, what happens when there's gaps? We fill them with conspiracy theories. And Titanic had plenty. There's one about Titanic being sunk on purpose by millionaire banker J.P. Morgan to eliminate his rivals that were sailing on board. There's one about the remains of a cursed ancient mummy stowed in the cargo being the cause of the sinking. There's one that claims the Titanic never sank at all, that it's part of some elaborate insurance fraud scheme concocted by the White Star Line that ends up going horribly wrong. We tend to think that conspiracy theories and misinformation are a new phenomenon or that they have proliferated with the rise of the internet. But when you just blame the medium, you miss the bigger picture. Because I think we get just about everything wrong when it comes to conspiracy theories. Like everything, how they spread, why they spread, how we talk about them, the ways we try to combat them, absolutely everything. I'm going to cast a wider net. Sure, you may find some predictable characters in this story, the internet, the news media, the government, but I'm also going to talk about cigarettes and trash cans and things you may not expect to intersect within a story about conspiracy theories. Yes, this story is timely, but I'd like to try to convince you that it's also timeless. Because from 1912, we're heading to 2018 to talk about mattresses. So the year is 2018. The location, a place you may not regard as having a presence, but somewhere we're increasingly present in, the internet. Specifically Reddit, a discussion-oriented website where users can post comments that are organized by threads or boards. Now, broad topics like news, politics, and sports have a place here, but so too do more specific ones like forums about a particular television show or video game. That said, one of the most popular discussion forums on the site is one with no real centralized topic at all. It's a board where users can ask, well, basically anything they want for one another to answer. Often they're innocuous questions like, which song from the 1990s makes you the most emotional, or what is the most terrifying thing someone has told you while they were drunk? But the question that was posted on one fateful day in 2018 was this. Which conspiracy theory do you 100% buy into and why? That's when a user wrote the following. 
Mattress Firm is a giant money laundering scheme. It's Mattress Firm's best Memorial Day sale ever. Right now, you can get a king for the price of a queen or a queen for the price of a twin. Yeah, that Mattress Firm. The American mattress store chain operates thousands of stores across the country. Anyway, this user writes that these stores, quote, are everywhere and they are always empty. I remember seeing four mattress firms on each corner of an intersection once. There is no way that there is that much demand for mattresses, end quote. A user comments back, quote, we were just talking about this in my office. Literally two mattress firms, separate storefronts directly across the street from each other in the shopping center outside of our window. We never see anyone in there, no matter the time of day or day of the week, end quote. The post begins to pick up traction. More and more people agree. Users begin posting maps of their cities, with a shockingly high number of mattress firms pinned within a 10-mile radius. Next, someone points out that mattress firm's parent company is Steinhoff International, an organization that had previously been under investigation for some financial irregularities and alleged tax fraud. On and on it goes. Eventually, the conversation spills off of Reddit and onto Twitter and across every corner of the internet. The conversation, as they say, went viral. A few months after this all happens, Steinhoff International begins closing many of the mattress firm stores that were within closest proximity of each other. Something like 700 stores in all. That only makes the speculation grow louder. Is Mattress Firm, in fact, just a cover-up operation for some international money laundering scheme? The answer, no, it is not. This was nothing more than a conspiracy theory. However, I probably sowed a seed of doubt in your mind. I'll try to dig up that seed in a few moments. But I brought up the Mattress Firm and Titanic stories because they demonstrate to me the two reasons why we entertain conspiracy theories in the first place. One has to do with control, and the other with trust. Titanic is a story about control, or notably the lack thereof. It's about the tragedy of our hubris, a man-made vessel recognized for its strength and beauty designed to control its environment, but ultimately being consumed by it. And whether it's unexpected maritime accidents or global health pandemics, we humans don't do well with uncertainty. In fact, our minds are built to rid out uncertainty to bring order to a decidedly disorganized world. We long to control our environments, so we go through life assigning motives to just about everything which means we often erroneously assign motive to randomness, when in reality there was no motive, it was just random. Mattress Firm is a story about trust, specifically how we don't have much of it in our news media, in businesses, and in government. And it's getting worse. According to a 2018 survey by Edelman, only about a third of Americans trust the government to, quote, do what's right, end quote. About 42% trust the media, and according to Edelman, that number is down five percentage points from the prior year's survey. Trust in business? That percentage was down 10 points, too. We're willing to entertain conspiracy theories because we have very little faith that our institutions are acting responsibly. And these theatrical examples of conspiracy theories proving true 
like the mob's involvement in rigging the McDonald's Monopoly contest? These remain salient in our minds. They stay fresh because of their novelty, and they sort of fuel this confirmation bias. They trick us into believing that these types of occurrences are the majority, when in fact they are a sliver of the minority. So in the case of these big developing stories centered around tragedy, or stories where the events break first and the scientific understanding plays catch-up, these are gaps that exploit our longing for control and our general lack of trust in big institutions. But that only explains why we're willing to entertain conspiracy theories. It doesn't explain why we're willing to believe them. For that, I'd like to ask you a question. How good of a driver are you? In 1999, Cornell University psychologists David Dunning and Justin Kruger tested participants on a variety of tasks, including logic, grammar, and sense of humor. The researchers found that regardless of their actual ability, the subjects overestimated their skills or knowledge in any given task. They called it the Dunning-Kruger effect. This is why we all think we're better than average drivers, or that our sense of humor or logic is superior to most others. This bias exists in all of us. In the original study, even participants in the 80th percentile of a given skill still overestimated their ability. But this bias has been shown to be particularly severe in individuals with little to no skill in the measured subject. In that original study, participants who were in the 12th percentile of a given skill estimated themselves to be, on average, in the 62nd percentile. Said simply, we're terrible at measuring what we don't know. Think back to the mattress firm conspiracy theory. In reality, all of those stores that were in close proximity to each other, they were originally mattress firm's competitors. Competitors place stores near each other based on a mix of economic theories like Hotelling's model of spatial competition and game theories like the Nash Equilibrium. In 2014, Mattress Firm wanted to be everywhere, so they start acquiring their competitors like Mattress Giant and Sleep Train. They built up a lot of debt in the process, and this resulted in Mattress Firm having a lot of stores right next to each other. Then, as the decade progresses and the online mattress business begins to accelerate, Mattress Firm is caught holding a lot more stores than they need. So they file for bankruptcy in 2018, close a bunch of stores, and begin to restructure their way out of it. Honestly, this is kind of a boring story, and it's built on a host of complicated economic strategies and a few bad business decisions that most of us do not know or understand. That's where the Dunning-Kruger effect kicks in. We don't know what we don't know, but we vastly overestimate our expertise in a particular subject. Money laundering schemes are more salient in our mind and easier to understand than Hotelling's model of spatial competition. And so we misjudge our gaps. In 2019, researchers from the University of Lisbon and the University of Porto in Portugal went even further. They studied participants' views specifically related to science and found that the people most susceptible to fringe ideas, the ones that are least likely to trust a near consensus scientific opinion, weren't the people that were rated least knowledgeable. It was the people that rated in the intermediate percentiles. A little bit of scientific knowledge inflated their confidence, made them believe that they knew more than they did, 
and this created an even larger competency gap. Here's what David Dunning had to say on the subject himself in an interview with the New York Times in 2010. Quote, people often come up with answers to problems that are okay, but are not the best solutions. The reason they don't come up with the best solutions is that they are simply not aware of them. Unknown solutions haunt them without their knowledge. The average detective does not realize the clues he or she neglects. The mediocre doctor is not aware of the diagnostic possibilities of treatments never considered. The run-of-the-mill lawyer fails to recognize the winning legal argument that is out there." End quote. This is what is so compelling about conspiracy theories. They astutely prey on our biases, like the Dunning-Kruger effect, on our inability to accurately assess the gaps in our knowledge. Propagators of these conspiracy theories, they love to say something like this. I, I might not be an expert, and neither are you, but here are the clues. Now you can go form your own conclusions. It's an attractive argument to stand behind because it nestles into our competency blind spots. It suggests that we can take those clues and form as compelling of an argument as an achieved trial lawyer. It suggests that we can make a diagnosis as accurately as a field expert or an acclaimed scientist. That all we needed all along were the clues themselves. But of course, we can't. Instead, it's akin to placing your toddler in front of the groceries and expecting to be served a Michelin-starred four-course meal. So we've talked about how and why conspiracy theories can spread. But we're missing one very important piece to this story, a piece that plays a pivotal role in ultimately shaping public sentiment, in shaping how these theories are viewed and whether they proliferate. Should the news media, the government, the scientific community respond to conspiracy theories? There's this fear that publicizing them does more harm than good, that placing fringe ideas on mainstream outlets legitimizes them. But, on the other hand, not mentioning them at all, that sort of plays into the trust factor we talked about earlier. When something isn't acknowledged, we tend to think someone is hiding something. So what's the answer? But here's the problem. We're not asking the right question. The answer isn't whether the mainstream media, the government, or the scientific community should address conspiracy theories. It's how they should address them. Okay, first, yes, social science has shown that merely bringing up something, regardless of whether it's truthful, sort of validates it in our minds. In a 1977 study by researchers at Villanova University and Temple University, participants were asked to rate how confident they were that a series of facts were truthful on a scale of 1 to 7. The survey featured statements that people were unlikely to know, like the first Air Force base was launched in Mexico, or basketball became an Olympic sport in 1925. They invited participants back to take new surveys over the course of multiple weeks. The researchers snuck in some of the same statements on the new surveys. They found that the participants began rating themselves as more confident that the repeat statements were true with each passing week. Items they weren't confident about being true in week one, slowly, incrementally, their confidence levels begins to grow about those statements when they saw them in repeat surveys. This is called the illusory truth effect. So if you're going to bring up a conspiracy theory, you have to talk about it. 
you can't waste the moment that you call attention to it in our minds. Because if you just point it out without explaining why it's inaccurate, you are, in fact, subtly reinforcing this pang of doubt, this nagging feeling of uncertainty we may have. But that's still not the whole picture. Because we're still treating the symptom, not the disease itself. Look, if you want to spend time trying to change someone's opinion, you're going to have to understand a sobering reality. People who believe a conspiracy theory don't actually think it's a conspiracy theory. Sure, in public, they may admit it's an unpopular opinion or even a fringe idea, but if they're willing to believe it, they don't view it as a conspiracy theory. And chances are the more dangerous the idea they believe, the more marginalized they already feel. Those feelings of trust and control we talked about earlier, they're probably on the far end of both spectrums, feeling like they can't trust anything big institutions tell them, and feeling like they have no control over their environment. That's why that fringe idea is so attractive to them. That's why conspiracy theories can become a public health crisis. If we're going to reframe this conversation, if we're going to address this as a mental health crisis, as a public health issue, we should learn from a fascinating example of what can go wrong when we try to combat them. When I was only six years old, my mom started smoking. Smoking menthols or regular cigarettes causes wrinkles that age you prematurely. What are menthols costing you? You've probably heard these anti-smoking advertisements before. They're actually funded by the tobacco companies. In 2006, the courts ordered them to begin producing television and media advertisements as punishment for the decades of deceptive advertising they disseminated to the public about cigarettes. Now, it seemed like a good idea. Introduce a series of educational or even emotional advertisements and make the tobacco companies pay for them. But here's the problem. These ads have been shown to have an inverse effect. One study by the Journal of Media Psychology found that the more negative the cigarette ad, the more defensive the viewer became. This is known as the boomerang effect, the notion that trying to persuade someone to think or do something differently will have the unintended consequence of that person adopting the opposing position instead. We hate being told what to do, and I can think of no better confirmation of that sentiment than this. In a study, by the American Journal of Public Health, the researchers found that the anti-smoking commercial that was the least effective, the one that saw the highest increase in smoking sentiment and usage among youths in the market that it aired, was a commercial that told kids that their parents want them to stop. Don't tell us what to do. We resist when we feel like we're being pushed to believe something, especially when that push is negative. In a 1984 study in the Association for Consumer Research, participants were twice as likely to litter if the trash can they walked by had a negative message printed on it, instead of a positive one. Yes, a trash can that said something like, do your part in keeping Earth beautiful, was two times more effective than one that said something like, don't litter, on it. Because we hate being told what to do. This is the crux of the problem for big institutions. If you're going to address the conspiracy theory, well then, address it. Don't marginalize the people that might be susceptible to believing it by insulting them, by making them feel small. 
Merely dismissing it or casting out those that believe it, that will only make it worse. It fuels more people to adopt the opposing viewpoint. Instead, match them, address the flaws in their argument, just as they shot holes in the original one. If they've got a so-called expert on their side that they're propping up for validation, do the same on your side with experts and leaders that can explain the reality of a situation. Above all, don't be condescending. Don't be negative. Don't back marginalized voices further into a corner. I know this feels counterintuitive, and of course, it won't change everyone's minds. But if you believe conspiracy theories are a public health crisis, which I do, you have to start combating them like you would any public health crisis. And just because a public health crisis may never be fully eliminated, that doesn't mean there's not value in reducing the percentage of those impacted. For us, personally, remember that we're not all great drivers. That we misjudge what we don't know by a shockingly substantial amount. That just because we can't always trust big institutions, that doesn't mean we should assign motive to randomness. And, above all, don't bring our parents into the conversation. Hey, this is David Giardino. Thanks for listening. If you liked this podcast, subscribing would be a big help. And if you're in an extra generous mood, rating it in your local app store can also make a big difference. Thanks. Thanks.